0: We are in Ezra chapter seven, you'll notice. And for those of you who have not been here for a while, like the Rogers sitting over there, back from Arkansas, good to see you. And uh, uh, we'll we'll pick up, we'll do a little bit of review. And uh, so you can know where we are and what we're trying to do. We're doing a, a study through the book of Ezra. We took a break between chapter six and seven. And did a study through the book of Esther that's chronologically ordered and uh, so we will pick up today again in Ezra chapter 7. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into our study of this incredible chapter that has some wonderful application for each one of us here. For those of you who are watching at home, the same thing goes for you. Father, we thank you now And pray that you would help us as we work through the, the Scripture. The Scripture is timeless, and so even though this book was written a long time ago, it has application not just for the people that lived then, but it has application for those of us who are the chosen people of God as we live today. So, Father, help us now as we study, help me, to express clearly the truths of what is contained here and help our hearts to uh, engage with uh, what we need to see so that we can be used by you in every season of our lives. We thank you, and we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, heroes and superheroes are, I think by looking at the movies and things like that. They're all the rage today. I'm thinking specifically of one of those areas that I know is quite popular, the Marvel Universe. Are you familiar with that? There are a lot of superheroes and they're one thing. It's amazing to me that everyone that I see, I don't know how you top the last one because they're all out to save the world. And then there are a lot of biblical heroes that you and I can look at, and we've looked at those before. Sometimes people say we need to imitate them. I would say in certain areas, absolutely, but always with a grain of salt, you need to be careful. For example, David, he is a hero that we need at times to emulate, but not in everything. Samson, the same thing. Gideon, Esther that we just got through studying, and, and certainly she came into her own later on, but her start, well, it was a little bit rocky. So we come to this new character that's introduced to us in the seventh chapter of the book of Ezra. It's, the book is his namesake because we've been studying about another guy named Zerubbabel, and all of a sudden we're introduced to this guy named Ezra. Now, I want to put before you that of all of the people that we've been talking about recently, that Ezra could be one of those biblical characters that you really need to consider being a hero. You really need to consider that you and I should look at what he does, and we need to emulate him in that. Basically, what you're going to see today is that Ezra had a calling on his life and that he was able to be successful and blessed in that calling. You're going to learn a vital teaching that applies to your own life, and I'll show this to you a little bit later. If you want, now hear me well on this, if you want true, true success and blessings, I'm not talking about the kind of success and blessings that the world offers. Okay? So many times that's nothing but a cheap substitute, an imitation. But if you want true biblical success and true blessing, and you don't have to write it down right now, you can if you want to. I'm calling it the 78910 principle. And we'll come to that in just a little bit. But first, let's review. Let me go to Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read one little part of this, and then we'll stop and and do, uh, by way of review, uh, look back at what we have gone through so far. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, and then it gives a a list. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go back, in terms of our review, (laughs) all the way. Let's go back all the way to the beginning, the very beginning. In the beginning, man was created by God to walk with him and to worship him and to relate rightly to God's creation. And then man and woman, created by God together as mankind, we given the responsibility for reproducing a race that would do exactly the same. Well, it didn't take very long before Adam made a total mess of things by defecting from God and essentially doing what mankind has done ever since, doing his own thing and his kids did it, and his kids from then on, ever since. In fact, if you go back, and if you're familiar with biblical history, it didn't really take long. This was several generations, I know, but from chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 6, we find it getting so bad that God did, and I wrote this down, and I thought, wow, this has implications for today. In Genesis chapter 6, God did a global reset. Are you hearing about that today? Kind of interesting, in June 2020, that's a couple of years ago, a guy by the name of Klaus Schwab wrote a book called The Great Reset Initiative. And we're seeing parts of it come to fruition, economic, political, health, all the rest of that. Now, when God did his global reset in Genesis chapter 6, he said, I'm going to wipe the whole thing out save for several and begin it again. And he did. And so, all of us in this room, every person is descended first of all from Adam, but then we make our way through Noah and we come down to today. And you know what we've seen ever since then? We've seen the same pattern of defection from and disobedience to God. God was merciful. We, we come up to the first part of Ezra. And by the way, Ezra and Esther inserted. It's not in this exact order in, in your Bible or in the Hebrew Bible, but Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah represent the last part of Old Testament history. And so we've come up to this point. And over and over again, the chosen people of God, Israel, they have disobeyed God. We find these words in 2 Chronicles, and boy, this, this is packed with all kinds of meaning. The, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem in the temple. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his, God's word, and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord raised against his people until there was until there was no remedy and that's what we saw before the babylonian captivity the northern kingdom was wiped out they were taken captive by the assyrians and then nebuchadnezzar and the babylonians came and took Judah captive for 70 years until. Now remember, the 70 years was not punishment, it was discipline. God was doing something all during that time. And at the end of that time, God moved the heart of Cyrus, the new king of Babylon, to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Why? Did, did this just happen? You know, in the book of Esther, we've been talking about the providence of God, and we've seen over and over again. And in our ABF class today, we, we talked about this some more because I don't think you can ever really talk too much about the providential ordering of God through all of human history. Daniel 4 gives insight into this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures From generation to generation, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I've said this before, let me say it again. This is a great mystery, but this truth of God providentially ordering all of history should greatly encourage us. So that brings us up to Ezra. Zerubbabel was sent back. And all the way through chapter 6, Zerubbabel is responsible for and finally with some setbacks, of course, and some prophets coming in to remind him of the job that he was sent to do. He rebuilds the temple. And we said that what that was essentially if you look at it that was the fact that he was reestablishing and reigniting and restoring the heart and the desire for worship we come to the end of chapter six and, and right here in verse one now after this remember there was approximately a 60 to 100 year period of time in which the events of Esther have been set. And we've talked about that for the last several weeks. God raised up a nobody to become a somebody who was given a task. And she stepped up, and the Jewish people were delivered at that particular point. Why? So that the redemptive purposes of God could go forward. Let me just say something. We're having some problems with this, and let me just ask if there's anybody back there, would it be better for me to do this? Use this microphone than than this? We see, Is it just me? Okay. let's let's do that, Mike. Let's go to this mic. All right. now can you hear? Ah. I hope that you weren't lost completely because of some clicking and popping. All right, we've come to the end of Esther. You got it? And now we begin a new chapter. So God has already used Zerubbabel. Remember, the line of the Messiah comes through Zerubbabel. And now we see that Esther has worked for the deliverance of the Jewish people. And now comes a guy by the name of Ezra. We focused before on restoration. In the book of Esther, we focused on deliverance. Why? Just so a group of people could be saved from death. Remember, they ultimately were going to die. All of the Jews were going to die eventually. But this was redemptive. So that the line of the Messiah would be preserved. So with that, let's look at the three different movements I've given you on the outline. We're going to work through these. The, the first one is gonna have the bulk of uh, the, the message and then the last two will come in and feed out of that because this is the part that I want you to hear. I don't care how young you are, I don't care how old you are, this is so important for all of us. Let me read this again. Now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Who's Artaxerxes? He is the son Of Xerxes, the husband of Esther. Okay, are you following the timeline? Xerxes was the king when Esther married him. The deliverance happened. And he ultimately, this is interesting. Remember, Mordecai was used to save Xerxes from an assassination plot. But guess what? Ultimately, Xerxes was assassinated. And he had three sons, three three sons. And Artaxerxes became the one who was king because he assassinated his own brother. So we pick it up with that. Not a very benevolent sounding guy, but we're gonna see how God takes even the most powerful and wicked and uses them. This is great. In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, I'm gonna try my best, folks. Son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, This is important. Son of Shalom. Have you ever heard of these guys? Maybe. Son of Zadok. Son of Ahitub. uh, Son of Amariah. Son of Azariah. Son of Miraioth. Son of Zariah. I'm running out of steam. Son of Uzi. Son of Bucky. Uh, Let's say Buki. It sounds more that language, son of uh, Abishai, Abishui, son of, now here's where we recognize a few of the names, son of Phineas, a man used, he was zealous for the Lord. Remember when he stayed the hand of the punishment of God by executing judgment on people who were disobedient, defecting from God. Then son of Eliezer, he was a good priest. He had a couple of brothers didn't turn out too well, Nadab and Abihu. Remember when we studied through Leviticus? Remember what happened to them? They were all sons of Aaron, the chief priest, but Nadab and Abihu were struck dead for introducing strange fire into the worship of God. And so what we have here, and, and by the way, every word of scripture is inspired. So you look at this and and you try to not read into it, but you try to take application out of it. I had written down in my notes that Ezra had an impressive ancestry. I scratched out impressive and I put noteworthy because I realized that not all of them are perfect. So let me just say this to you. Whether your ancestry was noteworthy Or a bunch of losers. God can still use you if you do what Ezra did and apply the 7, 8, 9, and 10 principle. Well, what is that? Let's look at it for a minute. You can write that down at the top of your notes or you can just remember it. Things like this sometimes are easy to remember. Oh, what's the pastor's basic message today that I need to do like Ezra and I need to practice the 7, 8, 9, 10? Well, it's Ezra 7, chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. Boil it down to that. Verse 8 gives his mission, all right? Does everybody here have a mission from God? The answer, yes, you do. Every every Christian has a mission from God. Here was Ezra's. It's going to be specific for each one of you. This was Ezra's mission. Verse 8. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So that was his mission. He had come, to the kingdom for such a time as this. And God was, God was just doing a work in his whole thread of redemptive ministry, uh, uh, mis, uh, ministry. And he first had Zerubbabel and then he plugs in Ezra to do that redemptive history. It says that he was a scribe and that he was a prophet. I particularly like this. Go back to verse six. Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe. Now, normally that was military government scribe, but in this context, he was a scribe of the law of Moses. Now watch this. He was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. That leads us to the next part. Of the seven, eight, nine, and ten principle. Look at the last part of verse nine again. For the good hand of his God was on him. Now, let me say this. You need this, you need for the good hand of God to be upon you. And lo and behold, you'll find that in scripture and narratives like this many times that if something is, is important, it's repeated. And if something is repeated more than once, it could mean that it's very important. So let me go back to that statement that I started. You need more than this. This is not all you must have, but if, listen to me, if you do not have this, then nothing else matters. Prayed for Seth all week long when I found out that he would be leading. I said, Seth, this morning, have you, have you done this here before? And he, he said, no. Done it at the family camp and other places, but I haven't. And I said, well, I've been praying that the good hand of God would be upon you. And he said, Thanks. And there's not anything that you do this week that you do not want the good hand of God upon you. See, the most important thing is not what you do for God. It's what God does for you. And then what you do for God flows out of this. Now, I said if it's important, it's going to be repeated. This phrase found here in chapter 9 And we found it in chapter 6 is, now watch this, in two chapters, it is used six times. Three times in seven, three times in eight. I'm just going to read through all of these, so different nuances of this phrase. We're going to talk about this because it's so vitally important for the hand of the Lord is God was upon him for the good hand of his God was on him chapter or verse 9 the one we just read for the hand of the Lord my God was on me Ezra's own recognition of this by the the good hand of our God on us it goes out into a corporate setting the people of God need the hand of God the good hand of God upon us the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Boy, if that's not a present day application, I don't know what is. And then finally, the hand of our God was upon us once they had completed the mission. You know what the hand of God is? Okay, I'm going to give you a big word that I learned in seminary. I'll see if I can pronounce it. And some of you some of you younger ones, get this down and you can ask me to pronounce it for you again. The hand of God is an anthropomorphism. Thank you. It gave me a chance to say it again. The hand of God in scripture. We're seeing this terminology. What's the hand of God? It's what people who study the Bible called an anthropomorphism let me divide that word it's a Greek word comes from a Greek word anthropos man morpho meaning form we know from John John's gospel chapter 4 that God is spirit God does not exist in flesh and blood But in order to communicate with us the different nuances of how God interacts with his people, he uses those human forms. God doesn't have human hands, flesh and blood hands, but he does have something else. Do you remember what I just said, John chapter 4 and verse 24? God is what? Spirit. So he doesn't have eyes, but he sees. He doesn't have a mouth, but he speaks. He doesn't have an arm, but his arm is strong. He doesn't have hands. But he still reaches out and does some things that we'll talk about in just a second. He doesn't have feet, but he moves to and fro throughout the earth. Do you know what this is a picture of? Write it down. The hand of God being upon Ezra is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, also takes different forms in scripture, fire, water, wind. So essentially, how we can use this today is that when we see that Ezra had the hand of God upon him, then we need to react and say, we need that. I need that. And it's referring to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, and who does these certain things in you and through you. Let me show you just a couple of things, five things that the hand of God does. All right? You may want to write these down, just the, the essence of it and the scripture, okay? The hand of God, first of all, created you. Job 10, and and then Psalm 139. That's what Jim read just a few moments ago. Let me just compact those together. Job said, and he was aware of this, was he a doctor? He just knew God. Your hands fashioned and made me. When? When did the hand or the Spirit of God fashion and make you? Children, young people, when did the hand of God make you? For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I loved the end of that little clip that we saw that showed God. Did you see God's hand in there? No, but his hand was there. And it was knitting together and weaving together in the womb. That, let me, let me put it like this, image-bearer. Do you realize that from conception, when does God start weaving? A month? When, when, when it shows up on a pregnancy test, when you can see it on a sonogram, from conception, God weaves image-bearers. Do you understand why being pro-life, pro-sanctity of life is so important? But it because it has to do what we with what we believe about people being created in the image of God. Now, some of you know my story, and I just don't want to belabor it ever, but I didn't find out until I was an adult in my 40s that. I was conceived out of wedlock, 17-year-old, wonderful young lady, my mother. And she chose life, I, I, I think, that, as I talked with at least one of my aunts who remembered the situation. But there was a question because my aunt said, you weren't supposed to happen. You don't know how we tried to get rid of you. I I, you know, I don't know how to put together all of the providence of God and the decisions of people and the, the, all of the rest of that. But I do know this, that we are image bearers of God from conception and should be protected. I, I, I was on a panel as a youth pastor in Plano, Texas. You know my standard joke for that, don't you? I was a Plano youth pastor. And I was on a panel at a school, and they were asking us different questions about life. And I, there, there was a guy sitting over here, and and uh, I'm trying to remember what religion. Oh, he's a Catholic. And then me, and then a lady who's a teacher, and she was Jewish. And so the Catholic started, and he he, he just said, "Life is valuable. Uh, we we believe in." And he may, may not have used these words, the sanctity of life, and we seek to protect that. And, and evangelicals and Catholics may not have a lot in common, but that is one thing that we have in common. And so I answered the same way of the value of life. And I, I, I was so shocked by the, the response of the Jewish lady. And they, they do not believe life begins in the womb. So therefore abortion is okay. She leaned forward and pointed and said, I believe these two men have been far too political. And it wasn't my turn to speak, I wanted to rebut. I didn't know exactly, I didn't. It's not political, it's moral, it's biblical. You Young people, listen to me. You are create. You are an image bearer. It's not that you're just born and you're a person. You, when you come to faith in Christ, then you get to shine God's glory. That's why God created people as image bearers. His hand was on you in creation. Let me move on. You are identified with Him. I love this verse in Isaiah. Behold, I have. Uh, Done a temporary tattoo of you on my hands, the palm of my hands. You know there are temporary tattoos. You can get them; they they wash off. Don't everybody run out, get them. And there's also a, a thing, a temporary thing called henna. I think is is that it that I've seen. And, and you know, you might think they're attractive; you might not. But this is not a picture of that. Well, it might be. It's not just a picture of taking a magic marker and him writing. It's engraved. He's taken a stylus and he's engraved you on the palm of his hand. The Holy Spirit's work. When you became a child of God, there, there was an engraving that took place. You became permanent in your relationship with Almighty God. John 10 says nothing, nothing or no one can take you out of the Father's hand because that's what God's hand has done to you. Not only that, he upholds you and he sustains you. Look at these verses. In his hand is the life of every living thing. Referring to God. Your right hand supported me. Though he fall... He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I love the picture of that. No matter how you want to picture it, the Holy Spirit is upholding and sustaining you in every season of life. If this is a good time in your life, he is upholding and sustaining you. If this is the final time, like with Harold Stansberry, he upholds and he sustains. His hand is always with you. I remember going to a park, and I've done this too, but I just remember so vividly seeing a child. This was a long time ago when they actually had the metal. You remember the metal slides? Yeah, you remember those? They wouldn't pass OSHA today, but we we grew up with metal slides, and so I remember seeing this metal slide and this little toddler Climbing up gingerly and not sure what they were going to find at the top and all the rest of that. And he had no idea. But his father was there below him with his hand. So that if the toddler happened to slip, he would be upheld and sustained by his hand. That's going to look different in different situations. But God will always uphold and sustain you. And the last thing is, he anoints and he empowers you. Exodus, or excuse me, Acts 11, 20, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture. Psalm 139, and, and Jim, you read this a few moments ago, but but here's where I want to show you. And you... Um, I, I, I couldn't really read you when I said God's hand is symbolic of his spirit. Always call me out if, you. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Does the Bible really say that or are you reading into it? You, you ought to want to know that. So Psalm 139 gives us a picture of that because it's all talking about the same thing. Where shall I go from your what? Spirit. Where shall I flee from your, this is an equal to, your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there by the power of your spirit. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand, spirit, hand, shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. The same spirit abides in you that abided on Ezra. And that's why one of the things that I pray, I've, I've got a prayer guide that I pray every day. And one of the things I pray for you, I pray for my family, I pray for me, that we would be spirit saturated, filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if you know what's coming, uh in Ezra chapter 9, if you don't, uh, you can read ahead and say, how in the world is uh, are we going to tackle that? It's an interesting passage. But if you know what's coming ahead, then you'll know why having the hand of God, being filled with the Spirit of God was so important to the ministry of Ezra. So let me just stop and apply it. I, I think it was in junior high where I first heard an authority, you know, I really don't remember, I think it was a teacher, who said, students, let me pose a situation for you. And they launched into a situation. Basically, you're stranded on an island, and there's somebody who has a boat or something like that. And the question is posed, would you, and then fill in the blank. I'm not going to to say exactly what that teacher did, but you could fill in the blank with any of the moral code of God, which expresses the character of God, right? So lying, uh, stealing, committing adultery, coveting, you can just go down the line. But basically, here was the question that was posed to the students. If there was a greater good, are we hearing some about that today? If there was a greater good to be accomplished, would you violate a character principle to accomplish a greater good? Do you know what that's called? Well, it's called a lie. That is a classic example of what's called situational ethics. And you teenagers and you preteens, please, please listen, you adults. I am asked fairly regularly, is it okay to, and then fill in the blank. The most recent, I think I shared with you guys several weeks ago, very good question. Is it ever okay to lie? Situational ethics will create a situation in which it is okay because of the greater good boy that can be applied all over the place. Moral relativism that's another name for it. And folks, that is a lie. what We must be like Ezra. We're going to come to the second part of that. We haven't even come to the to the two other parts. If those are quick like I told you but if we're not like an Ezra and we do not teach our children and we do not live it ourselves, then we are going to end up in a nice, Christianized, situational, ethics, moral relativism kind of culture. And many churches already have. We're not patting ourselves on the back, puffing ourselves up, but we're just saying that there must be an absolute that we hold to. That's how sola scriptura is supposed to work. And so there is a flow to what God does. True success, true blessings, if they are going to be realized. Now, again, when I say that, I'm talking about true favor from God. I'm not getting over into the so-called... Prosperity gospel, that's, that's a lie. Just believe it and you'll be blessed financially and never have any sickness problems. And that, that's not true. It, it means favor from God in the midst of every circumstance of life. Now, how did he get there? Verse 10, 7, 8, 9, 10 principle. This is the verse 10. Look at it. For Ezra had set his heart How did he become so skilled, It said in verse six? He set his heart. There's a quote over here by Philip Brooks. We will never become truly spiritual spiritual by sitting down and wishing wishing it to be so. Just ain't gonna happen. He set his heart to do three things. These are simple but so profound. Number one, Study the law of the Lord. Now that's specifically the Torah, the Ten Commandments, but for us it branches out into the entire book which is inspired by God. He studied the word. But he didn't just stop there. One of our staff members, Rocky Hales, always says, we do not want to raise a bunch of bucket heads meaning you've got the, the head knowledge but not, not the, the heart of living it out. So the second thing that he did is he did it. He studied it. He, he determined this is what it looks like for me to obey the fifth commandment or the sixth commandment or the seventh commandment. Let me put it in terms of purity in life rather than just in w- w- what we don't do. He studied it, and he studied it, and then he applied it. He did it, but he didn't stop there. He taught others to do it as well. So what's a good starting place for you? uh, Daily devotions. We've we've got, I think, online and out on the Welcome Center, uh, a guide. Use your own if those are not good enough. Make it a priority. That's what Ezra did. That's why he was successful. That's why he was blessed. He was favored by the king and, and by God. He set his heart to study and know the word and then to live it out, to do it. And then to teach what he had learned to others. So my prayer for you, my prayer for my family When I go over them individually every day, oh God, help me to be saturated with your Holy Spirit. Help me to be saturated with your word. Help my children and my grandchildren to be saturated with the Holy Spirit, saturated with your word. You can't have one without the other and have true success. All right, verses 11 through 26. Are you ready? Let's work through this. I'm gonna read part of it. See the title? God faithfully supplied everything and more that Ezra needed for his mission. And I'm going to add this. He'll do the same for you, for your mission. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes, verse 11, gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters matters of the commandments of the law and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, here's the body of the letter King of kings. kind of. Humanly speaking, yeah. Who's the real king of kings? Yeah, Jesus. To Ezra, the priest and scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now, and he makes this decree, you're going to go out. You're going to take people and you're going to ask the people of Babylon for money. And guess what? I'm going to give it to you. Verse 17 You you there? With this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God. He was not a believer. He was appropriately aware and fearful of Yahweh. And so he said, you get this stuff and offer it so that everything will go well with me. It was a self-centered thing. Now, I love this, verse 18, whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. I believe this key, this is a key to understanding what might have happened in chapter nine. Now, drop down to verse 21, and I, Artaxerxes the king, made a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra, the priest and scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Let me just give you an idea of what that looked like. Up to 100 talents of silver. How much is that? Well, if you look it up, it's about four tons of silver. I don't even know how they transported four tons of silver, but... 100 cores of, of, of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, salt, without prescribing how much. And so here is the key that you need to know. This is a picture that flow out of the, what's the name of the principle? Say, say it with me. Seven, eight, nine, ten. The blessings seem to come from the king. We're going to find out in the very last part of this book, they were from the king, but they were also from Almighty God himself. This is an interesting psalm. Some would say there, there's a variation to it. I, don't, I really don't think so. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. It doesn't mean you'll have a superabundance. Listen, if you live in the United States, you do. I don't care who you are in this room. But it does mean you'll have everything that you need. And then Proverbs 21, 21, again, some say it came from the king. We know better. He was not the king of kings. The king's heart is like a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. And God will give grace for today. It's not just in financial things, people. Please, don't get that idea. Whatever you're going through, you need grace to go through it. And God's going to give you grace for today. I'm not going to read it, but please read Jim Elliff's quote on grace for today. That's what you need. Don't Don't worry about tomorrow. So many Christians are upset because they're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. God will give you grace for today. And guess what? When you wake up tomorrow, a fresh measure measure of grace will be there. Last thing, God sovereignly directed the heart of the king in the way of Ezra. He will do the same for you. God is always, always, always working behind the scenes, ordaining, providing, presiding over everything that we need. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Let me say this. I, I saw this written and I thought this is too good to pass up. Those who see God's hand in everything can leave everything in God's hand. Those who see God's hand in everything can leave everything In God's hand. The confidence that the events in our lives don't just happen. They are all orchestrated by a God who loves us and who is powerful enough to accomplish his purposes in and through us. Ezra was a true hero. Someone to be emulated. And if you look carefully, you're going to see that there might have been a question in his mind. It's it's never indicated. Because that wasn't the issue. Zerubbabel went back and he had 50,000 people that he led back to Jerusalem. Wow. Wasn't near what the population was in Babylon of the Jews. When Ezra went back, he had 2,000. He could have been, maybe like you or like me, tempted to say, Boy, that's pitiful. I I didn't do as well as Zerubbabel but he didn't go there. The key was that he was faithful with the calling that God had given to him and he did what was necessary to be faithful. Studied the word, he obeyed it and did it and he taught others to do it as well. Do you want to change the world? That's used a lot. (laughs) Do you want to shake the nation's smacking of triumphalism? hey, start here, study the word, do the word, teach the word, and depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit, the hand of God, upon you to do in you and through you all that he wants to do. Father, I'm grateful that you have laid out for us the the marvelous picture of what Ezra did, truly a, a, a hero. And I I pray that we would see that and that we would be compelled to do that for those of us who know you. Lord, if we don't know you, it's not going to make a difference. It's just another talk, another sermon, another message, and we go out and our life is unchanged. But Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that by your hand, your good hand upon us, stir us. To seek to do these things, set our hearts on these things, even as Ezra did. And help us to at least stand against a world that is saturated in situational ethics as we stand upon your complete and absolute and inerrant word that you have given to us. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, I pray that today they would see the weight of their sin the wonder of a holy God who sent his son Jesus to take the due penalty of sinners like us and hang on Calvary's cross to die and be buried and to be raised on the third day. And I pray that people would trust in that. So I thank you for the opportunity to gather together and worship. And we pray now that as we conclude our time, we would continue throughout the week to worship and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.